Hey everyone, and welcome to the Soylent Green podcast. Here at Soylent Green, our goal is to provide access to the hypotheses and theories floating around the climate change research discussion. We want to invite you to listen as we pick the brains of our guests to learn how researchers are trying to provide answers to some of the biggest questions of our fledgling geologic epic. The Anthropocene. Dun, 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 dun. My name is Alyssa Hanafi, and I'm studying soil and crop sciences at Colorado State University. And I'm Levi Johnson. I'm also a soil and crop science student at Colorado State University. Today, we're going to be talking to one of our favorite people, Dr. Jim Ippolito. Jim Ippolito is currently the assistant department head and professor in the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences here at CSU. He has over 230 peer and non-peer-reviewed articles specializing in soil fertility, chemistry, environmental quality, and soil health in a number of ecosystems such as production agriculture, rangelands, forests, burned areas, and mining operations. And so today we'll be discussing some best management practices to create sustainable and resilient agroecosystems, fertilizers, soil health, and of course, what would a Soil and Green podcast episode be without one of our favorite topics, poop? We hear you're an expert in poop. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Welcome, Jim, to our podcast. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me. So I guess what we want to start off with is kind of hearing your backstory and how you got to your position here at CSU. Well, this is a long journey. Mm-hmm. So take I'll, your time. Okay, I'll take my time. Where were you born? <laughs> I was born in <laughs> Princeton, New Jersey. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, whoop, whoop. The armpit of America. The armpit of America. <laughs> Side note, I was raised in New York, right next to New Jersey, so it's an East Coast thing. <laughs> Actually, New Jersey was a great place to grow up. It's a great place to be from. Sounds like Florida. Yeah, a great place to be from. <laughs> Just to clarify, I'm from Florida. And I went to the University of Delaware for my bachelor's degree. I knew I was going to be in sciences, but I didn't know what science I wanted to be, except I didn't want to be in chemistry because my family, my long line of family are almost all chemists or metallurgists. <laughs> and I fought hard. You kind of messed up there, huh? Did I mess up? Well, you're... You're expert in soil chemistry, so... I did mess up. Oops. <laughs> yeah. So what happened was I took a class in horticulture when I was a freshman. And that class was outside of the arts and sciences college that I was in when I started. Hmm. That class was in the College of Ag at the University of Delaware. And it piqued my interest enough to take another class when I was a sophomore. And that class was Intro to Soil Science. And I was hooked and I transferred into the College of Ag and I received my undergraduate degree in, well, it was plant sciences. We didn't have a focus on soil science at the time at the University of Delaware. And I had a concentration in agronomy. So I'm basically an agronomist. I have an agronomist training as an undergrad, believe Very it or not. Cool. And then I came to CSU for grad school in 1989 when there was only 40,000 people in Fort Collins. It, this Aww. town was wonderful. Doesn't the school have like 40,000 people now? It, yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> Harmony Road was a dirt road. Wow. There was nothing on Harmony Road in 1989. Wow. And when they started building out on Harmony Road, everybody said, why would you build so far out? That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I finished my master's. I worked on a project that was all hydroponics, looking at the effects of chloride or sulfate salts on 12 different plant species that would be used for reclamation purposes in coal mine areas on the Western Slope, kind of over near Hayden, Meeker, that area. And <laughs> I had maybe three months left to finish my degree. And somebody walked into the lab. Actually, it's the lab that I work in now. Oh, really? Yeah, that we work in. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And they said, Jim, what are you going to do after you finish? And I had this deer in the headlights look because <laughs> I was so focused on my master's degree and finishing my master's that I didn't think about the next step. One or two weeks later, research associate job was posted in the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences for someone to run a biosolids research lab with a professor named Ken Barbrick. And Ken posted that. I applied for it. Maybe I was the only one who applied, but he had to hire me. And <laughs> I think he thought I was crazy because my personality hasn't changed in, geez, since I was 14. <laughs> I was hired on board. I was a research associate in the biosolids lab, in our soil lab. Yeah. The lab that Alyssa, who's here today, knows because she works in that lab. Best lab ever. The best lab ever. <laughs> And I was in Cassidy Buchanan's position, who's mm. now running the lab. lab I did manager. that. Lab manager. I was lab shout manager. Shout out to Cassidy. Yeah. Shout out to Cassidy. <laughs> <laughs> so I was lab manager essentially for that program for 16 years. And while I was a research associate, I swore I would never go back to school. And after about a year and a half of a break, I just needed to go take a class. And then I started my pursuit of my PhD. It took me eight and a half years because I was working full time. And then I finished that. I stayed on board here at CSU as a non-tenure track faculty member for six years. I funded my salary completely. It was really painful. Wow. Saw the writing on the wall. It said, Jim, you need to get a real job. <laughs> so I finally landed in Kimberly, Idaho, in South Central Idaho near Twin Falls. And I worked with the USDA ARS, Agricultural Research Service, for nine or 10 years as a soil scientist. Okay. And I crossed the boundary between soil science and water science. Sure. And I worked on all sorts of projects there. Anyway, long story short, I got lucky. I mean, I got really lucky, fortunate to land back at CSU in 2016 in the position I'm in now. And I came back to CSU as non-tenure track faculty <laughs> for two years. Sucker. A sucker. <laughs> and then the department head switched me from non-tenure track to tenure track. And here I am. Yay, we're and glad you're here. I know. Woo! Yeah, baby. <laughs> So I just want to explain, because we alluded to it in the intro, but our listeners might not know what biosolids are. Oh, yeah. So here at CSU, we run likely the longest running biosolids land application program in the U.S., believe it or not. Our claim to fame. Our claim to fame. This is, <laughs> we're in our 40th year this wow. year. Yeah. Wow. It's been going for 40 years and the project has sort of morphed over time. But this is, this is the concept with biosolids. So biosolids are a waste product from wastewater treatment facilities. So maybe a mystery to some people listening, or maybe not, but everybody poops. What? Oh, that's I, my favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> thought it was only what? me. <laughs> <laughs> only Levi. Boy, you're generating a lot of poop, Levi. <laughs> For 40 years. You know, you idea, man. <laughs> So you flush the toilet, it goes somewhere. Most people just sight unseen, but everything flows downhill. It doesn't matter what city you're in, unless you're really far away from a wastewater treatment facility. And then there's probably a pumping station that lifts poop and then lets it flow downhill again. So Not much kidding. work. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that waste goes to a wastewater treatment facility. It's treated at the wastewater, wastewater treatment facility to meet EPA standards for wastewater discharge. So the water is cleaned at the wastewater treatment facility. The water itself is discharged and then used for something else downstream. The waste that's generated is solid, typically, not always, but we take that solid material here in Colorado and we land apply it and we study the effects of land application. And we do that under a number of settings. We've done it under agroecosystem settings for 40 years. We've looked at 
LAN application under rangeland settings for 31 years. We've looked at land application to forest fire burned areas to control erosional losses and movement mm -hmm. of sediment into streams that feed drinking water to the city of Denver. We started that in 1997. That doesn't really continue today, but we, we started a project way back when. We had a project over on the West Slope in areas that were just they were sort of plant deficient in terms of just overall plant growth, I guess, if you want to call it that. And an area that was really interesting because this area is, they contain a lot of shale materials. And those shales actually contain quite a bit of molybdenum to the point where when a plant grows in these shales, they end up taking up just a little too much molybdenum. Okay. And if you were an ungulate, if you were a, a cow, for example, and you came along and you, you ate that plant, you might actually end up with a, a disease called molybdenosis. Yeah, it's ooh, scary. I did not know this. <laughs> yeah, so the uptake you of molybdenum. You have to take Joe Brummer's class. Uh, yeah. Did you learn this in Joe Brummer's? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it's molybdenosis, right? And so what happens, my understanding is if animals, especially animals like cattle, eat a plant material that's high in molybdenum, when that plant material enters their gut or their rumen, it can act and interact with copper and form copper molybdenum complexes to the point where copper isn't taken up by the animal and the animal suffers. Mm -hmm. And it's an easy fix. You can put out a copper sulfate salt lick or copper salt lick. Oh, okay, but, yeah. you know, out in the natural environment, nobody's ever going to do that. Right. So <laughs> believe it or not, with biosolids, we were able to offset that issue in these plants over near Wolcott, Colorado on the west side of Colorado, because our biosolids here at most municipalities tend to accumulate a little bit of copper okay. because of municipal infrastructure, okay. copper piping. Right. So you can see that signature in the plant. It's really cool. And then you solve a problem. So the biosolids contain copper and the copper interacts with the molybdenum or? It overcomes the complexation in the rumen. So you have a little bit more copper in the plant versus the amount of molybdenum, the ratio between okay, the two. Okay, ratio. Okay, yeah. interesting. I did not know that. We didn't go that far deep in yeah. Joe Primer's class, but that's really interesting. It was a really fun project, you know, and that's where I learned about all this stuff. So molybdenum is an essential micronutrient for all living organisms. However, as it mentions, domestic ruminants are especially sensitive to the ratio of copper and molybdenum in the plants on which they feed. Molybdenum poisoning in cattle was first diagnosed in England in 1938. All cattle are susceptible to molybdenosis, milking cows and young stock being the most sensitive. Molybdenum is used primarily in the manufacturing of steel alloys for the aircraft and weapons industry. Most of the recent global production of about 100,000 tons annually comes from the U.S. and primarily in Colorado, where we are right now. Anthropogenic activities have contributed to environmental molybdenum contamination which include the combustion of fossil fuels, smelting, mining, and milling operations for steel, copper, and uranium. So the copper prevents the accumulation of molybdenum in the liver and may antagonize the absorption of molybdenum from the food. The molybdoproteins so formed are strong chelators of copper and may be the agents responsible for copper deficiency through formation of biologically unavailable copper complexes in the gut, blood, and tissues of animals. Symptoms of molybdenum toxicity in cattle include scouring, rough hair coat, hair color change, dehydration, arching of the back, listlessness and weakness, emaciation, and in most extreme cases, death. What other results did you see from our poop on the different systems you used it on? 
Well, I, you know, some of the most exciting. I'm just going to call it poop. Yeah, it's, a poop. <laughs> it's, it's sewage Sorry. sludge. People used to call it sewage sludge. And then that doesn't sound so good. It doesn't sound very good. No. And then it morphed into sewage biosolids, which doesn't sound very good. Nah. And now we all say biosolids. It's a little bit more mysterious. Yeah, it's mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> what is in this mysterious material? We've done so much work with biosolids. You can just imagine 40 years of research on biosolids land application in the state of Colorado. And it actually, this research started before the project that I work on. And it really started in like 1977 here in uh, Colorado, up near Steamboat. And there was a project that utilized liquid biosolids from the Steamboat Wastewater Treatment Facility. And the people that worked on this project land applied this liquid material with the idea that if the water or the wastewater moved vertically down through the soil, that the soil would clean the water before the water ran back into the river, which is called the Yampa River near Steamboat. And real basic project with lots of unknowns, hypotheses, and it worked. And that was what really kicked off biosolids line application research here in Colorado. And it happened in our department at Soil and Crop Sciences Department, which was called the Department of Agronomy back then. And you can just imagine 40 years of research in Colorado on this material. And there's been a lot of work that's been done. And I'm fortunate enough to say that I've been part of that for 30 years of my career. And I hang a lot of my accolades on this project because we've just done some really great work. So we've done work in Colorado to revamp the biosolids land application rules and regulations for the state of Colorado based on work that we've done in eastern Colorado, especially surrounding nitrogen fertilizer application rates for biosolids for certain crops and how to calculate those application rates, that's in the state rules and regulations. Hmm. That came from CSU. So just for people who might not know who are listening, how do biosolids and nitrogen fertilizers relate? Like, how would you get your nitrogen fertilizer rates from biosolids? That's a great question. And we worked on that probably 20 years ago here at CSU. We had projects where we took data from increasing biosolids application rates to increasing nitrogen fertilizer rates to dryland winter wheat. And then we did this for, I don't know, 12 years. And what we did was, you know, we did some regression analysis, pretty simple, right? Increasing rates, how much nitrogen is getting in the plant from biosolids, how much nitrogen is getting into the plants from fertilizer. And then you take these lines that you generate, regression lines, and then you compare them to one another. And then you see where they overlap. And what we found was Roughly one ton of biosolids per acre, which isn't, it sounds like a lot, but it's not. (laughs) One ton is nothing. Wow. Like you can't hardly see it. Mm. One ton of biosolids per acre equals 16 pounds of nitrogen per acre. And this is based on 12 years worth of work. So that's a huge resource that we were essentially just throwing away from our wastewater treatment. In terms of nitrogen, yeah. 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 And you know, I'll tell you the thing that's probably more interesting about biosolids in terms of nitrogen as compared to inorganic fertilizers. Biosolids are, they wouldn't be certified organic, but they're they're organic. I mean, they come out of our butts. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So unless you're eating pure metal, you're you're pooping (laughs) out organic material and it's being collected at a wastewater treatment plant. And the beauty of this is that Organic nitrogen forms have to be mineralized by microorganisms and released as inorganic nitrogen forms, right? Ammonium, which is transformed to nitrate, 
before plants can utilize it. Yeah, we talked about that with Kelly when she was on here. Mm. See, look, it's all tying together. <laughs> it's the puzzle. <laughs> I call it the I can't puzzle. Not think about that now. <laughs> this is the puzzle. And so the beauty of biosolids is they contain organic nitrogen that has to be mineralized by microorganisms before it's released to a form that plants can use. And so biosolids act like a slow-release nitrogen fertilizer. And in years where climatic conditions are above average, if you want to call that, for, say, precipitation, especially here in Colorado, where it's arid, we see better yields in our wheat crop with biosolids than we do with inorganic fertilizers because of that slow release throughout the growing period. And in fact, they tend to release nitrogen sort of at the peak of nitrogen needs for winter wheat. And it's just beautiful. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> creatures using waste of other creatures is something you see fairly often in, you know, natural systems. So it's surprising that we've removed ourselves from the system. That seems to be right. a big problem in agriculture. Yeah, I'm a pretty strong proponent for using biosolids. And there's, there's pros and cons to everything. Sure. And certainly there's a lot of unknowns. What's a con? Could you name one or two for us? Yeah, I could name a couple for you. So PFASs, these forever compounds, you know, like uh, fire retardants that end up in wastewater treatment. Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAs, as you might have heard of them, are organic fluorine compounds with more than 4,700 different substances. They're man-made chemicals that have been produced since the 1940s and consist of carbon chains of different lengths with multiple fluorine atoms attached. PFAs are water, grease, and dirt repellent, as well as chemical and heat resistant. Due to these unique properties, they are processed in numer numerous consumer products such as cosmetics, non-stick coated pans, paper, textiles, or ski waxes. No! In addition, PFAs are used for the surface treatment of metals and plastics, in pesticides and firefighting foams, and in a variety of other areas. Because of their chemical and thermal stability, PFAs are also called forever chemicals because they accumulate in the environment and are found worldwide in soil, ground, and surface water, as well as in the blood and tissue of animals and humans. Their high mobility allows them to be spread even in into remote regions like Antarctica. The presence of some PFAs has been reported in the blood, milk, urine, tissues, and organs of various human populations. Yikes. Investigations of immune system responses related to PFAs exposure have included asthma, allergic disorders, ulcerative colitis, infectious diseases, vaccine response, and autoimmune disorders. Of these outcomes, evidence suggests PFAs reduces vaccine efficiency in children, decreasing antibody production. This research was also conducted on populations with high exposure to PFAs. However, this association may vary based on vaccine type. This is an area of increasing concern and more research is needed to fully describe the health effects of PFAs. Or materials like, you know, you're cooking on some product that has no stick. Antibiotics? No. Yeah, there's certainly, there could be antibiotics. But I'm not too worried about antibiotics anymore because if you introduce antibiotics to a soil, there's enough microorganisms in the soil that will just beat the hell out of those That's antibiotics. True. There's still some concerns for materials like these polyfluorinated aromatic substances that are forever compounds that microorganisms have a tough time degrading. And these are compounds like, not very often and not in great quantities, but they're coming off of materials in people's houses. You know, if you have a material that is fire resistant and you wash it, well, the wastewater is probably carrying some of those materials to the wastewater treatment plant. That's an issue. That's a hot topic right now. 
what happens when they're exposed to the environment or what happens to the environment when they're exposed to these materials. Are they taken up by soils? Are they degraded by soils? Are they taken up by crops that we eat? Or maybe they're taken up by parts of the crop, but they don't go into a grain or fruit body. There's a lot of questions. So we're trying to answer those right now. Because these PFAS have only been around for about 30 years, right? Like, so we don't know the extent of their influence in, in the environment yet. No, we, we really don't. And so there's quite a few of us studying this, to be honest with you. There's Dr. Ian Pepper at the University of Arizona. He's pushing for a national survey to take a look at what biocides are doing across the nation. We have a project here at CSU actually funded through Michigan State University where we're going to be looking at PFASs in our soils and plants at one of our research locations here in Colorado. And there's people that are doing this all over the country. And EPA is really pushing hard for scientists to actually give unbiased opinion, I guess if you want to call it that, or unbiased facts, really, yeah. as to whether or not this is a concern. Hmm. And then microplastics. Microplastics are everywhere. I just saw an article that humans have 15 pieces of microplastics in their lungs, they discovered on average. You know, my grandfather was a chemist. He was an organic chemist. He worked for DuPont his entire career. Wow. And he was one of the pioneers for plastics. Yeah. And he was so proud of all the work that he did. And I was proud of him too, but I think he would probably second guess his work now, knowing what's going on with plastics in the world. Yeah. Right. I think just like everything, there's like a misuse of a resource. And I think maybe that's what happened, you know, like a resource is good. Yeah. Because plastics are used everywhere. Yeah. Which is just It became too cheap maybe and, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Way cheaper than maybe making paper bags, for example. Right. Or glass. But, or... you know, I got to tell you the story because this is really interesting because my grandfather was a brilliant man and, and he could get up on this board behind me and draw out all these organic chemical equations up until probably the day he died. So he worked for DuPont his entire career and he was a plastics chemist and he helped build plastic between glass to prevent glass from shattering oh. during World War II for the gunners in mm. bombers. And he did a heck of a lot of shot tests or shooting tests with different thicknesses of plastic in between glass. And that's interesting in and of itself. But if you get into a car accident nowadays, does the front windshield shatter? No. So you can thank my grandfather yeah. for doing that, no way. which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. He had a part in that. He was the lead plastic chemist that led to that kind of technology or the reflectors in road paint. Yeah. There's little tiny pieces Chips of plastic. Chips of plastic. Yeah. Oh, really? And he helped develop that. Interesting. And then I don't know how much paint is used nowadays, but there was a paint that had something called lucite in it, which was a plastic. Lucite, also known as plexiglass, is commonly used in airplane canopies or the glass that covers the cockpit, windows, boat windshields, and other similar applications like ornaments, medallions, camera lenses, as well as vehicle stoplights and taillights. And here's the cool part. And it's named after my great-grandmother, Lucy. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, nice. which is it's like really cool. Like, wow. That is really cool. Yeah. That's awesome. And my grandmother, my grandfather's wife, had a master's degree in chemistry back in 1930. Wow, my that grandfather, was rare. Yeah, and he had a PhD in chemistry from, and they both received their degrees from the University of Wisconsin. And my grandmother, I was told, was smarter than my grandfather, but then times were different back then and they had kids. Right, and sure. She stayed home and he went to work and blew things up at the lab. But you came from a, a family of smarties, huh? It's so crazy. <laughs> my mom has a degree in chemistry. My dad has a degree in no metallurgy. Way. My sister couldn't get out of the chemistry field. She's in biochemistry, basically. She runs a, a urologist lab. But wow. She, like the, the equipment that we use in soil science labs, some of the equipment overlaps with what she uses in her lab. 
She uses pH meters. She uses a deionized water system. There's a few other things. She uses centrifuges. I mean, it's crazy. My dad does. Basically the same thing, right? Yeah. And my dad has a degree in metallurgy. He has a master's degree in metallurgy. I didn't even know that was and, a thing. Yeah. Metallurgy is the art and science of extracting metals from their ores and modifying the metals for use. Metallurgy customarily refers to commercial as opposed to laboratory methods. It also concerns the chemical, physical, and atomic properties and structures of metals and the principles whereby metals are combined to form alloys. He studied lead at a really bad time to study lead and work in the lead industry. He was in the lead industry until the lead industry went belly up in the early 70s. Mm, leaded lead paint. gas. Yeah, leaded gas. Yeah. And lead roofs. Oh, my gosh. And talk about lead and how damaging it is to humans. And people really do. With having lead pipes. And lead pipes. Yeah, like Flint, Michigan. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and he was in that industry. And then it came to a screeching halt in about 1973. But when I talk to my dad and I tell him the equipment that we use. He goes, oh, yeah, I use that. And I'm like, what did you use that for? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I was studying, uh, you know, chromoly <laughs> yeah. something or other. I mean, like they got oh, the, the uh, stuff they make bike frames with, yeah? Yep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was like some of the best frames you could get for a while there they in the were, 80s. They were tough. Uh, I think of mine might be actually I have a Schwinn. <laughs> 80s, 80s Schwinn. Oh, 70s, excuse me. <laughs> That's so funny. Full anyway. circle. Yeah. <laughs> I fought it when I went to undergraduate. I fought it tooth and nail. I am not going to be a chemist. I took intro to chemistry, you know, chemistry 101, 102, <laughs> or whatever it's called. And I almost on purpose tried to fail that class. Sure. And I didn't. <laughs> and then I'm like, I, I still don't like chemistry. <laughs> you and, were, and that was your you rebelling are, teenager using years. Using it all the time in soil. <laughs> yep. I took a left turn after that Hort class when I was a freshman. And then I took intro to soil science. I'm like, I understand this. And yeah, okay, there's some chemistry, but I'm not a chemist. Yeah. <laughs> and then for my degree, I had to take biochemistry. I had to take organic chemistry, which I didn't like very much. But the biochemistry, man, I love that. Am I the only one who thought organic chemistry was kind of easier than regular chemistry? <laughs> you are the only one. No, my grandfather liked organic chemistry too. I thought it was fun. Is your name Glenn? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. It's my other life. middle name. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I just got hooked. And then I ended up taking chemistry. I, I've taken, I don't know, three or four soil chemistry classes. I like chemistry when we have the context of it in soil, specifically in that one context, because you can actually apply these theories to something that you can visually see or describe instead of just with chemistry. We didn't have anything to apply it to. Yeah, just obscure theoretical. Yeah. It's like, what is this actually for? And they might mention that this is a combustion reaction. It's like, okay, but but what is this actually going to be for for me? And then once we started getting into those, you know, soil fertility, all those classes, I was like, oh, okay, exactly. yeah. here's the application. <laughs> exactly. That's the beauty of teaching soil fertility, which is what I teach. But it's really, it's a toned down version of soil chemistry, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you learn about nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. You learn about micronutrients and how they act and interact in the environment. Guess what? That's chemistry. They're yeah. on the periodic table. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and that's the fundamentals, honestly, to even agriculture and understanding how plants take up nutrients and what forces them to grow. So I've really just come to look at soils as a giant like chemistry set that works itself. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, to be honest with like you. We, it's a it's, it's big chemistry experiment that's just been going on since the beginning of time. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and that's why I love 
soils because they're just so fascinating. Everything you would ever want to do is in one place right under your feet. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like outer space. Like there, we still don't know so much the dark matter of soils. It's There's just as much unknown as we know. When you had Kelly Wright in here, did she talk to you about what we know and what we don't know with microorganisms? Somewhat. We briefly bit. talked about it. So did she tell you when you take a spoonful of soil, there's probably a billion microorganisms? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and we probably know 3% of right. what's there. Right. <laughs> well, will we ever know what's really there? I don't know. I don't know. We're going to keep trying, though. <laughs> I, I really like, if, if I had to do everything over again in my career, I think I would still take this path that I took. But microbiology right now is really hot. It's fascinating. Mm. Can you overapply organic material like manure? And how does manure affect plant uptake of nutrients? The issue is with manures and biosolids and most organic amendments, not all, but most, plants need more nitrogen than phosphorus. Right. Plants typically need, if you look inside the plant or quantify the amount of nitrogen that's in a plant, it's about 1.5%. And the amount of phosphorus in the plant is about 0.2%. And when you look at the ratio of nitrogen to phosphorus in manures or biosolids or most other organic amendments, there's more phosphorus than nitrogen. Mm. And there's a dilemma there because the plant needs more nitrogen than phosphorus. But when you apply organic amendments, it's flipped. Right. So you're over applying phosphorus, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. the issue. I'm sorry. It's been a year. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just change your grade. That's okay. <laughs> Go back to my transcripts. <laughs> That's the major issue. Okay. Wait, so why is it that when there's more phosphorus that it, it just can't take up more nitrogen? Well, you, you For know... For our listeners who don't know, not me, of course. Yeah, I know so all plant, this. <laughs> plants are really interesting because they're really smart. They don't have a brain, but they know what to do and when to do it and if they need to expend energy or not. And so this is what plants do. In terms of nitrogen, if there's plenty of nitrogen, they'll produce a heck of a lot of vegetative growth and little reproductive growth. It's generally true. But if you add enough nitrogen to meet the crop demand, so that's what we do in Colorado with biosolids, you would do the same thing with manure. You would add manure based on the nitrogen needs of the crop versus how much nitrogen is in the soil. And you would do some math, unfortunately. And then <laughs> you would, yeah, dag, I have to do math for science. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's and, not what I signed up for. It's simple <laughs> multiplication, though. We'll just we'll say that. <laughs> yeah, it's really not that bad. <laughs> it's just, yep, it's plus minus, yep, divide, That's multiply. all we want. Yep. We'll keep it at that. It's simple. And so, and this is a rule in Colorado. So if you're applying manure or if you're applying biosolids or an organic amendment, you're supposed to follow a rule that you apply based on the agronomic needs of the crop. And those agronomic needs are based on nitrogen. So you do some math, you determine how much nitrogen is in the organic material, how much the plant needs, and then you come up with an application rate. That application rate targets the nitrogen needs of the plant. So it doesn't produce a lot of vegetative growth. It doesn't over produce vegetative growth, but it gets the plant to the point where it produces reproductive growth. So grain or fruit or something like that. The issue is when you apply based on the nitrogen needs, you tend to overapply phosphorus by about five times the need of the plant. Plants are not stupid and they take up only as much phosphorus as they need and they exclude the rest. It's called exponential rise to a maximum. And so that phosphorus in soil I teach this in class, and I don't know if I said this in class to you guys, but phosphorus loves to be loved. Yeah. It does not like being by itself. It's not a loner. And it's a lover, not a fighter. It, yeah, it's a lover. It's not a fighter. <laughs> <laughs> so it ends up in places like bound to minerals. Most often it's bound to minerals. And then the issue is 
is environmental degradation right. because of erosional losses, potential erosional losses and sediment that's containing phosphorus moving into water bodies and then that phosphorus is being released. And so it's a real dilemma. And we're lucky we live here in Colorado because it's arid and we don't have a lot of water movement. But you go to places where this application of manures or biosolids or other materials occurs where you have a lot of rainfall and you've had just years or decades of applications of manures or biosolids or what have you. Sometimes there's no place in the soil for phosphorus to be loved. Aww. It's so sad. Poor phosphorus. And so the phosphorus obviously goes into the waterways, but what would you see as a result of that? You would see eutrophication, waterway Do you want to define that for our listeners? It's, it's basically when a nutrient, and in this case it's phosphorus, enters a water body that is nutrient poor. In this case, it's phosphorus. What do I mean by that? I mean that phosphorus is a, is a limiting element in that water for life, for specifically like algae or microorganisms or something like that. So when you add just a little bit of phosphorus to those water bodies, algae love it. They, they spike, don't they? They spike and their population expands greatly and then they'll die and something will attack that material that algae and consume oxygen in the water column, which leads to hmm, fish kills and dead spots in water bodies, et cetera. So it depletes the oxygen in the water, which then the marine life cannot exist in those spots. Yeah, they decline greatly. But the general idea that I think of, like I think of Lake Erie in the US that has a huge eutrophication problem due to phosphorus. And huh, what's next to Lake Erie? There's Cleveland, there's Detroit. Detroit is a good example. Detroit butts up against between Lake Erie and I think it's Lake Superior, but they, they're close and they pull their water supply from that water body. Ooh. And if the water isn't clean, they have to clean it before it goes to your tap. So there's an extra cost for doing that. So it's all a puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's a puzzle. So how do you fix a problem? Can we fix a problem to prevent water from being eutrophied because of phosphorus moving either downward because there's no place for it to be loved oh. or reduce erosional losses before erosion or sediment ends up in a water body and releases phosphorus to the environment? Or do we just pay the extra cost out of pocket to clean that water before we drink it? I mean, there's always trade-offs. And Overapplication of phosphorus doesn't necessarily have to be from biosolids, but it can be from like lawn fertilizers as well, right? And from like these developments that are springing up. I mean, you can't really point a finger at any one material. But I need someone to blame. Uh, and <laughs> you don't really need to keep your your lawn green, people. We're all about the uh, native lawns instead of, you know, just grass. Well, they're easier to take care of. Yeah. If it was up to me, I think I would plant clover in my yard. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. Then you wouldn't have to likely apply any fertilizer. Maybe Nitrogen some fixers. You know, one of the things that's happening in the U.S., there's a group that's looking at legacy soil phosphorus. So soil phosphorus that's been built up over decades and trying to identify locations across the U.S. where this is happening or has happened. And then really try to look at, okay, this is a hot spot. We know this is a hotspot, wherever that is. And, okay, how do we protect the environment in and around this hotspot? And it's a really cool project that's going to get a lot of attention sooner than later. Sooner or later, you're going to see something that will pop up on your phone where you can look at a digital dashboard and see where those hotspots are located. 
So we'll put a link in our uh, Instagram and show notes directing you to this project that he's talking about. And you can click on things. You'll be able to do this. You'll be able to click on a smartphone app that will show you what the issue is and probably how people are fixing it. That would be so you know nice. Who's developing that? Or Yeah, the USDA ARS is developing it. Okay. And it's in conjunction with a group. And I'm bringing this up because it's a plug for the group I'm working with called <laughs> Par Partnerships for Data Innovations. Cool. It's awesome. a large consortium of scientists, GIS specialists, mm. mm -hmm. programmers, national program leaders. I, the list just goes on and on. And there's partnerships between the group that I run in and entities like Microsoft, like Esri, um, Cotton Inc., and the list just goes on and on and on. But one of the projects we're going to focus on out of probably a hundred different projects we're working on currently is this legacy P issue, legacy phosphorus. But you would have to depend on transparency of that information, right? So yeah. would, do you see any barriers there of like maybe cover-ups, you know, like when the oil spills happen and, you know, is that something that you could maybe prevent from happening? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that we talk about in this group is personal information. Sure. And trying to prevent personal information from farmers or producers from getting out. Yeah. Just because it's a really sensitive topic. Yeah. And I don't run in that realm, but I understand the reason why. And so what will happen is you'll, you'll have a map that you can pull up on your phone that won't provide you that information, but it'll show you hotspots. Interesting. Yeah. This happens all the time. It's a big data project and this happens sure. with big data all the time. Well, the more data you have, the the better the solution would be, I feel like, you know. Oh yeah. It's like mm -hmm. trying to do a puzzle without knowing what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. <laughs> you got it, buddy. <laughs> I feel like Sorry, you took that you one right always, out of his always mouth. Always comes back to that. <laughs> it's the puzzle. It is. You know, that's the beauty of being a soil scientist because you think you're doing something good and there's always a trade-off, almost always a trade-off. Yeah. So we've thought for years that plowing is the best thing we can do because we create a nice seed bed and the seed to soil contact is just right to make that perfect home for the seed to germinate and grow into wheat or corn or whatever. And the trade-off is we've lost a heck of a lot of organic carbon in our soils over time. So we've switched gears, right? And now we go to minimum till or no-till or strip till or some combination. Sure. And that looks good on paper, but there's certainly trade-offs to that as well. And, you know, maybe the trade-offs are things like increases in or decreases in, because sometimes trade-offs are positive, increases or decreases in greenhouse gas emissions, for example, or stratification of phosphorus in the soil. So there's more phosphorus closer to the soil surface. And if you don't prevent erosional losses, guess where you end up? Mm -hmm. Where we just were talking about, sure. eutrophication. Yeah. It's a it's a puzzle that will never be solved, to be honest right. with you. Right. We can only do the <laughs> yeah. best we can with the knowledge yeah. we have, I feel like. That's the fun part about being a soil scientist, because nobody in soil science will ever tell you that they're doing this to ruin the planet. Oh, no. You're not? <laughs> and I, That's why I, I was in this. <laughs> I think farmers get so much blame. And every farmer I've met is a supporter of oh, yeah. the environment. I mean, they appreciate the land as much as anyone else. It provides their, their lifestyle. So I fully agree. I've seen this before with students that are relatively young. And, you know, there's some ignorance. Maybe they're just naive because they really haven't been around farmers. And I think a lot of people that really just don't get farming and agriculture, sometimes they tend to think that 
farmers are just destroying the world. And if you, like you said, Alyssa, I mean, if you go out and talk to a farmer, they don't do that because the land that they farm provides for their family. And why would they want to destroy something that provides income for their family? I can tell you for a fact that they don't do that. Right. And if they don't have to spray for insects or weeds, they won't. Right. And if they have an alternative, they may actually use the alternative. Right. And it might be it might be cheaper or it might just meet, be more ethical to them to do something different. But they're certainly not destroying the environment. They try not to destroy the environment. Right. And we're seeing benefits from kind of like I mentioned this in the last podcast, like a more regenerative way of farming, which is reducing your tillage, covering your soil, because these are kind of mimicking the natural processes that have evolved to work over a millennia. So we're kind of bringing that back into our agricultural systems. And that's pretty neat. Yeah. And you know this firsthand because you've worked with me on soil health. And the premise behind soil health is essentially ideas like regenerative ag and the topics you just mentioned. So keeping the soil covered so you prevent erosional losses. Living root system. As much living roots as possible to start sequestering carbon. Well, I can come back to that one. That's a good topic. Oh, yeah. Introduction of livestock. So you increase nutrient cycling and turnover. And then there's a few others that the NRCS promotes. But diversity. Mm-hmm. If you look at some of the soil health talks from producers, people that really know what they're doing, and maybe they can't describe what they're doing on a scientific level, but I tell you what, those are some of the best talks you could ever go to because they're down to earth and they tell you what they're seeing. It's like being a scientist when you're three or four or five years old and you see, right? Like you actually observe, that's what they do. They don't go into the lab and they dissect everything and come up with numbers and concentrations. A practical application. <laughs> well, and what good is all the research you're doing if, you know, it can't be applied to these agricultural systems, right. you know? So that's where it's really fun to be a soil scientist because I, I've heard people talk that are, they're farmers, but they're farmers that are doing some unique things like living roots biodiversity in their systems or agroecosystems, introduction of livestock. And they're seeing all these positive changes. And although they may not be able to quantify it, they can kind of tell you what's going on. And then I sit there in the audience and I go, I probably could tell you scientifically what you're doing. And I would love to just dig my hands in that soil and find out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's super cool. Actually. There's a, that, what's that smell? Like, Ooh, a tin of seeds. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. oh. That post-rain smell, right? It yeah. smells so good. It does. Yeah. Dirt sniffers over here. It's <laughs> <laughs> not dirt. It's soil. Yeah. All right, we're done. <laughs> so where do you see the future of farming going? I would like to see, and I can tell you, I can see the push here in Colorado and in other states towards soil health. Improvements in soil health, regenerative ag, et cetera. They're all sort of tied together. But looking at practices like you described, where, I mean, if somebody can pull this off, and not all farmers can do this because it's, it's, not, it's not cheap. Like, I mean, to convert from conventional till to no-till, you have to buy equipment. And you might have to buy a new tractor. And the economics really come into play. But if you could pull it off to... Follow, there's five principles that the NRCS pushes for soil health, regenerative ag. And, and I, for some reason, you know, 
my brain shuts off at three o'clock in the afternoon and it's what, like seven, it's almost eight o'clock. We've had a so, long day. Guys. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> you know, keeping the soil covered, living root system, introduction of livestock, and there's two others I'm just drawing a blank on and I shouldn't draw a blank. Biodiversity is probably one of them. But, you know, come up with new ways by which we manage agroecosystems to produce the same, if not more food with less inputs and increase biodiversity to the point where the system just runs itself. Right. Yeah. Can we maybe quantify or, you know, just define what you mean by increasing biodiversity? Because I feel like when you hear that, some people are like thinking, myself included, you know, more plants, more animals, like what, what exactly are we talking about here when we're saying put more biodiversity in the system? I think, I think of things like there's a farmer in central Colorado, it's down in the San Luis Valley. He's, he's a potato farmer. His name's Brendan Rocky. Shout out Brendan. Brendan, <laughs> you're listening. You, you know, I still want to come to your site and pull soil samples, even though you might not let me. <laughs> what he does in his potato rotation like most, most people, it's a monocrop, mm -hmm. but he's mixed in, in key locations across his fields, different plants that attract insects that may reduce insect pressure to his potato. And when the he's, real integrated pest management, it's, it is. Oh, it's, that's I, a good yeah. one. I, I keep seeing that thrown around on like <laughs> jobs and they're like, oh, we, we practice integrated pest management. So you'll have to spray herbicides and pesticides. I'm like, that's not IPM, man. <laughs> no, he's doing it naturally. So he's, yeah. <laughs> he's brought in, and I can't remember how many different types of plants he's brought in, but he, he knows he's done his homework. And so he, you know, his potato field looks like a potato field, but within or embedded within the field, there's either an X or there's a pattern where these other plants are planted, like he'll never harvest them. Right. But the benefit that he gets from having those plants in his field with these, with these insects that are coming in for whatever, for pollination, for example, mm -hmm. or for reducing bad, quote, bad insect pressure is providing an extra benefit for him where he doesn't have to, he tells me he doesn't have to spray for insects anymore because of these new plants that he's placed in this field. And so if you just think about that, like, okay, and he's probably thought about this and he doesn't really tell you this in terms of numbers, sure. but I'm sure he's put the pencil to the paper and figured out, okay, what's the cost of that seed versus the cost of me spraying some right. herbicide or, or insecticide. Or the yield that I'm losing from insects. Yep. And the other observation that he's made, and he shows pictures of, pictures of this in his talk, and it's really fascinating. So those soils where he is, they're coarse textured soils. They're inherently low in organic carbon, and it doesn't take much to really push them low. So he has all these living roots in the system, and he's done this for years to the point where before he did this practice, and he was conventional farming, if you will, in potatoes, his center pivot, so they use center pivot irrigation, right? It goes around in a circle. His center pivot would get stuck in one part of his field because of lack of organic matter, lack of structure, Right, oh, wow. so organic carbon helps build soil structure, even in sandy textured soil. So it will build structure. So the center pivot would always get stuck. This is his story. I'm just repeating it. <laughs> I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm just going to tell you the story. <laughs> so he shows he shows pictures in his talk. He's introduced this different system, this different agroecosystem system with different plants, living roots, organic carbon. He hasn't quantified the increases in soil organic carbon, but my hypothesis would be that it's significantly increased over Farmer B that's practicing conventional practices. Right. Who's just harvesting everything every year and taking everything out of the soil. Including carbon. Yeah. 
And he shows pictures of his center pivot getting stuck in the corner of his field year after year after year, switched his practices. Now he's showing pictures where it doesn't get stuck anymore. And even though he hasn't quantified this, I would bet you there's an increase in organic carbon content because of the regenerative ag practices that he's following and a, an increase in water stable aggregates or aggregate stability in his field that's keeping his center pivot up instead of getting stuck. Hmm. He doesn't quantify anything like that, but that's where geeky scientists like us. Right. And I'm looking at both <laughs> of sure, you. Sure, yeah. But wouldn't that be fun? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, okay, let's go find out what he's really doing. Exactly. I'll take a trip down there this weekend, go knock on his door. <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> Let me out there. I'm going to pull some soils. <laughs> I'm here to look at your potatoes. Right. Also, can I have some potatoes, please? <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. So you So you think the future of farming is integrating more of these regenerative practices. And like we've mentioned before, like it's about feeding the soil. If you're taking something off of the soil as a form of like a crop or topsoil blowing away, you have to replenish it, right? Is that essentially what it comes down to, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's not a, you, whatever you take out, you should return to the system. <laughs> and if you could return it in organic form, you're going to see more bang for your buck. Yeah. That's what the literature tells us. That's what the science tells us. Inorganic fertilizers are great. I mean, they feed the world. There's no doubt about it. But we need to come up with a better plan. And that doesn't mean switching completely away from inorganic fertilizers. But if you could integrate organic amendments, if you could do it, or if you could integrate more biodiversity, anything to pump carbon into the ground. Carbon is the basis. Of That's, life. It is. Yeah. We are carbon-based materials. Yeah. Everything on this planet is carbon-based. And so if you can start building carbon in your soils, and lots of people study this, they just study carbon. And the thing I like about soil health is it's not just carbon because carbon is the starting point yeah. and everything cascades off of carbon. Right. So what cascades off of carbon? Hmm, microorganisms cascade off of carbon because <laughs> carbon is an energy source. And what do microorganisms do in soil? They uh, mineralize nutrients for plants, <laughs> which we then eat. <laughs> yeah. So they increase nutrient cycling and turnover to feed the plant. And they actually produce glue-like substances called glomulin that pull soil particles together, that increase particle or aggregate stability. Fun tie-in with our last episode, the uh, earthworms do the same thing. They do. And they help stabilize those aggregates, which makes it uh, better for the plants, for the water infiltration. And you're saying the microbes do the same thing, right? Yeah. And it's based on carbon. Amazing. So you think about regenerative ag and really the bottom, the foundation of regenerative ag is increasing soil carbon stocks in soil. And then it just cascades from there. Right. Yeah. If you, yeah. If you start with that, you start improving all of these other things that may be lacking in your soil. Yeah. Like you said, Levi, you increase water stable aggregates. You open up pores, increases aeration, water percolation, infiltration. Water gets down to microorganisms. Huh. Just like humans, microorganisms need water and they need nutrients and they enhance nutrient cycling and turnover because they have water. Interactions between minerals, some minerals in soils, especially phosphorus and potassium minerals, need water to transport phosphorus and potassium from that mineral phase to a plant root. Without water, it won't happen. It's called diffusion. You learned that in my class. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to get, yeah. Oh, I, you remember? It's coming in handy. Yes. Look at that. Yeah. This is the puzzle, yeah, right? Puzzle so man. if you can enhance all these positive attributes of soil through regenerative agricultural practices, you win. We win! And, it, and it, it sounds good, but it also looks good on paper when you quantify it, right? You know, because sometimes we have these 
I don't want to say utopian ideas, but we have these solutions to problems, but they might not benefit the farmer. They might not benefit, you know, uh, the ecosystem. But this seems to actually prove to benefit both, which isn't that great. It's a warm, fuzzy feeling. It is. (laughs) I was going to see if we could switch tracks for a second. Still kind of on the same tip, but... um, Quick little backstory. I was in Rocky Mountain Youth Corps. That's a trail crew, and this is based out of Steamboat. Not related to the project uh, Jim was talking about earlier, but I got the opportunity to work on uh, the Pennsylvania mine reclamation. This is outside of Keystone, where they used to mine silver and gold in the late 1800s. And so I've kind of been interested in mine reclamation ever since I did this, because all we did was plant trees probably some in the wrong areas. <laughs> I found out later. <laughs> I was like, blue spruce, that goes at a low elevation, right? No. Nope. <laughs> Although that's all pretty high elevation. But anyway, the river there that runs below it, I saw it was like this really odd kind of milky blue. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's due to acid mine drainage, which I'll have you explain to the listeners in a minute. But what are maybe some of the impacts downstream from something like that? Mm, that's a great question. So if you look at a global scale for mine operation or mining operations, the U.S. wins. And I don't know if that's good or bad. You mean like we've done the most? Yeah. More than China? We're the best. Well, I don't know if the numbers in China that I have are accurate. Who knows if any of those numbers are accurate? I think they only have one (laughs) mine there. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just taking this massive mountain apart. (laughs) One giant mountain full of lead, actually. I work on a project from a lead smelter in a lead smelter area in China, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm a secondary person. Nice. With a professor from Henan University of Technology. His name's Leping Li. Leping, if you ever hear this. Shout out Leping. What up, Leping? (laughs) He's a great scientist. Anyway, the U.S. wins. Like on paper, the U.S. wins. We have somewhere around 500,000 mines in the U.S. Wow. All over the U.S. I mean, some of them don't cause this degradation to the environment. Some of them are pretty benign. I mean, there's a mine in northern uh, New Mexico. It just sits there. It will never probably do anything. There's no acid mine drainage. I'm I'm not going to tell you the mine. Probably proprietary. (laughs) But here in Colorado... In the Western U.S., we sort of win, too. There's like 33,000 mines that create acid mine drainage in the Western U.S. Wow. And what this is, is we historically have mined for precious metals, gold and silver primarily, also some lead, some zinc. And you dig rock or material or mineral phases from below the soil surface, below the ground, actually. And you bring those to the surface and you crush them, you smelt them, and you remove the gold and silver. And the waste material gets thrown over your shoulder. Mm -hmm. Historical mining operations in Colorado, it was thrown over their shoulders and into water bodies and washed away. If you're ever hiking around that area or some any other of these areas, uh, plenty of areas that I've been to, you just see the mine tailings everywhere. And it's like this (laughs) yellowish, like looks like gravel that they just tossed on the side of the hill. And it's all just leaking down into these rivers and water sources. Yeah, if it looks out of place, it's out of place. Yeah. (laughs) And so this is the story. So some of those, not all of those materials that get thrown over the shoulder, but some of them do have a a mineral called pyrite. It's iron sulfide. Fool's gold, no? It's fool's gold. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so when fool's gold is exposed to oxygen and water, it can undergo a reaction and essentially form sulfuric acid. And that sulfuric acid degrades other rocks and minerals in whatever pile this fool's gold is in. And so when you see colors like blue, that seems unnatural, yeah. there is probably <laughs> copper or nickel 
in a rock that was degraded due to acid mine drainage. And that color, that's the color of those, those elements. You see that expressed in the water body. Mm-hmm. And it's usually not a good thing because I, I mentioned sulfuric acid and the pH of those waters could be extremely low, like two. Yeah. The pH of your what stomach. What can live in that? Just some microbes we learned Jeez, earlier, but wow. that's about yeah, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, acidophiles. Mm-hmm. And we see this all, well, not all over the place, but we, I mean, if there's 33,000 mines that cause this in the Western U.S., if you know what you're looking for, you'll find it. And I've been fortunate enough, I guess, to work in areas like that where we've tried to reclaim those or we've reclaimed them so this doesn't occur. And it's really fun. Because how do you how do you reclaim a mine? I was just going to say a uh, real quick preamble to that. We, we were shown like the tiered ponds that they had. And I'm just thinking maybe you could help explain what this was, the use of this, how they do it, because it was like three or four ponds that were kind of going downhill in like a terraced kind of fashion hmm. where the water that was coming out of the mine was going into those pools and it was just dripping over into the next pool, into the next pool. I've never worked in those systems, but if I had to take an educated guess, I would say that they're trying to evaporate as much water off so that the metals in that water are concentrated and they stay in a certain location instead of flowing downstream. Right. You know, you see those kind of things. Like I've seen that before here in Colorado. If you go west on I-70 and then you take the turn off south towards Leadville on Highway 58. This is in that area, yeah. Yep. So the Climax mine, it's a molybdenum mine, but mm-hmm. off to the west, the area looks like it's like a bomb went off. <laughs> and they use that for evaporation ponds oh, to wow. blow the water off as evaporative losses. And the metals are left behind. And I don't know what they do with the metals, to be honest with you. Yeah. But it's better than them flowing downstream into a drinking water source. Would they maybe collect them like they do? I know that there's like a big salt collection or maybe it's like desalinization outside of Canyonlands National Park. Mm -hmm. There's like this. It's so weird because it's like this, you know, reddish brown desert. And then there's just like these bright pink and blue pools out there. And it's because of... I think they're getting salts out of them. Yeah, they're they're actually evaporating water and leaving potassium um, potash behind. That's what it was. Yeah, potash. potassium chloride. Or, yeah. And the colors you see are just impurities. Mm-hmm. This is the beauty of being a scientist because I know like a lot about a lot of things and I don't know a lot of, well, I guess I do know a lot about like certain things. But... <laughs> and that's used as a fertilizer too, no? Yeah. So here in the Western U.S., Great Salt Lake, they mine potassium fertilizers. They just blow the water off, well, the cordon off a part of the lake. This is what they do near Moab, like Canyonlands. Mm-hmm. They'll pump water from below ground to bring up a brine, and then they'll put it in some kind of holding area. Mm-hmm. The water is evaporated, and then the salt's left behind. And then they, I can't tell you if it's pure potassium chloride or potassium sulfate, but they'll, if it's not, they'll probably take it somewhere else, and they'll process it to make pure potassium chloride or sulfate. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's awesome. really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and- as we're talking about kind of like how fertilizers are kind of mined, I don't think a lot of our listeners would know how a lot of these inorganic uh, fertilizers are created and how energy expensive that is. Could Do you mind uh, explaining a little bit about the process? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Quick rundown of the Haber-Bosch. Yeah, the Haber-Bosch <laughs> process. Honestly, I didn't really know that it was, that was how it happens. I I didn't know that it was created by a a Nazi guy either. Haber was actually not a Nazi. He was Jewish, but converted to Christianity in 1892. Let's just look at some historical facts. The Haber-Bosch process is generally credited with keeping Germany supplied with fertilizers during World War I, after the British naval blockade cut off supplies of nitrates from Chile. 
During the war, Haber threw his energies into supporting Germany. He developed a new weapon, poison gas, the first example of which was chlorine gas, and supervised its initial deployment on the Western Front in Belgium in 1915. His promotion of this frightening weapon precipitated the suicide of his wife, who was herself a chemist, and many others condemned him for his wartime role. There was great consternation when he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1918 for the synthesis of ammonia from its elements. After World War I, Haber was remarkably successful in building up his institute. But in 1933, the anti-Jewish decrees of the Nazi regime made his position untenable. He retired a broken man, although at the time of his death, he was on his way to investigate a possible senior research position in Rehovo, Palestine, which is now Israel. Everyone, read your history books. Yeah, <laughs> this is so where we get our nitrogen from. <laughs> this was um, this was developed in the early 1900s by Haber, who was a German scientist. And he realized that you could pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere under extreme temperatures and pressure and convert it to ammonia gas. And it revolutionized the way we create fertilizers globally. And then Bosch came along and they worked together to basically make this process maybe more efficient. Mm -hmm. And then there's a history of Haber and some of the evil doings that he performed through chemistry to kill people. Yeah. That I'm not going to talk about because it's sad. No, that's, that's but if fine. you want to do your own research, <laughs> yeah, no, you can. Yeah, exactly. yeah, you really should. I mean, it's just a historical perspective of somebody who changed the world in terms of fertilizer use. And the process is still pretty dirty, right? I mean... It's just energy intensive. Energy intensive. Yeah. Okay. So, so like us mining these fertilizers, we would have to do quite a lot to offset that, right? Yeah. So you think about fertilizers and where do they come from? It's not magic. It's chemistry. Mm -hmm. It's really just chemistry chemi is magic. Okay, <laughs> it's yeah. <laughs> An alchemist di discovered yep. this. He made gold out of the atmosphere. <laughs> Click. <laughs> that process uses a lot of natural gas. Yeah, that's the heat. And mm -hmm. then they take atmosphere. You know what we're breathing. There's 78% nitrogen. It's inert, mm -hmm. and you force it to become ammonia under intense temperature via the use of methane, right? burning of methane and pressure. And, it, and there's a few other caveats in there. I'm not going to get into the chemistry. That's Again, fine. you could do yeah. your own research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do your own research. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it creates ammonia gas. And that ammonia gas is the starting point for every single inorganic nitrogen fertilizer you buy on the market today. Every single one. Yeah. And it's interesting because fertilizers, creation of fertilizers, like phosphorus fertilizers, some phosphorus fertilizers are actually tied to the Haber-Bosch process. So you might buy an ammonium-based phosphorus fertilizer. And we sell a lot of this on the market today. There's diammonium phosphate, there's monammonium phosphate. They, they're white pellets mm -hmm. or prills. They have phosphorus and they have nitrogen. And the nitrogen comes from the Haber-Bosch process. So these industries are pretty closely tied together and they're mm -hmm. closely tied with the energy sector as well. Sure. And if you know what you're looking for, you probably can tell that, oh, that's a fertilizer manufacturing plant because there's pipes going everywhere and you might see elemental sulfur piling up somewhere as they pull sulfur out of petroleum products. Mm. It's just, it's all interconnected. Yeah. So anyway, inorganic nitrogen fertilizers that you buy in the market today all come from the Haber-Bosch process. And the first product is ammonia gas. Phosphorus fertilizers, all of our phosphorus fertilizers are mined. There's no magic and there's no 
there's very little of any phosphorus in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. There might be some phosphine gas, but it's so low, you can't mine it. It comes from rock phosphate. Mm -hmm. And those are typically found in arid to semi-arid areas. We have a rock phosphate mine in southeastern Idaho. It's probably the largest mine in the U.S. To give some numbers, the global fertilizer market in 2021 reached a value of $163.2 billion. The Russian invasion of Ukraine substantially elevates the risk of disruptions in the global fertilizer trade. Russia is the world's largest exporter of fertilizers, accounting for 23% of ammonia exports, 14% of urea exports, 10% of processed phosphate exports, and 21% of potash exports, according to the data from the Fertilizer Institute. The primary destinations of fertilizers from Russia are Brazil, about 21%, China, 10%, the U.S., 9%, and India, 4%. Yeah, the United States, the European Union, and other nations have imposed economic sanctions on Russia, which could hinder Russia's exports. On March 11th, the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced it would support additional fertilizer production for American farmers to address rising costs. This summer, the USDA will provide $250 million through a new grant program to support independent American fertilizer production. Just another reason that we need to get away from reliance on fertilizers. The largest location is in Morocco. They sit on like a giant, I won't call it a gold mine because it's a phosphorus mine. (laughs) And if you're ever interested, you should go to Google Earth or just Google longest. Yeah, what do you call it? Treadmill? uh, Yeah, it's like a (laughs) treadmill. It's the longest belt for conveying conveyor belt it's a conveyor belt that's it <laughs> good job guys we got teamwork there. eight o'clock my brain's toast it's a conveyor belt the conveyor belt in morocco goes from a mine to the mediterranean and it's like 60 miles long i'll yeah. try it, to find it and post it yeah. so it's really cool. I, i'm interested to see too yeah it's insane and you're probably wondering that's a long belt it's not one continuous belt okay yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay we have one in colorado it's 14 miles long Oh, wow. It's near kind of Keystone, that area. Okay. It's in Summit County. Okay. But that conveyor belt in Morocco is six, like 60 miles long. And if you can look at it, at, you can see it on Google Earth. You can zoom in and you're like, oh, mama. <laughs> and this conveyor belt in Morocco can be seen from outer space, just like the Great Wall of China. And they mine rock phosphate and they put it on this belt and that goes 60 miles to the Mediterranean. And then that rock phosphate's loaded on ships and shipped all over the world. So maybe if we could like limit our use of these inorganic fertilizers, as you were saying, by, mm-hmm. you know, practicing these regenerative practices, maybe, you know, we can reduce a little bit of that emissions that it takes to transport those and to mine those. And, you know, just to be aware that these are happening, I think it's important for people to know. When you think about, you bring up a good point because it takes energy to move product around the globe or make product. So if you can limit the amount that you input into a system by regenerative ag practices, you, you kind of win. You know, I mean, you have, theoretically, you have less dollars coming out of your pocket because you're treating your system, quote, better, and you reduce inputs. And there's so many exciting things. I wish I was a little younger, but I think about phosphorus and soils. And phosphorus loves to be loved. So it gets bound to aluminum, and it gets bound to iron, and it, get, it gets bound to calcium. And in our soils, we have plenty of them. And in our soils, our soils, almost every soil on the face of this planet has enough phosphorus to supply the pea needs for a plant, but it's locked up with these other elements. So what if you could somehow modify something in a plant or a microorganism to produce more phosphatase enzyme? That's what Hmm. releases phosphorus from organic forms. But what if you could do something like that, but help release phosphorus from inorganic forms? Yeah, that'd be really neat. Dude. Is there such a thing? <laughs> I'm sure a... someone's working on it, right? <laughs> when when it's finally 
public, I'm going to call this discovery the Ippolito Bosch process. You heard it first here <laughs> at the Soiling Green Podcast. <laughs> oh, man. That's great. Um, I, I like to tell you, can I tell you another story about please? mining? Because yeah, we were going course. on that mining. So the traditional way that people reclaim mining operations that generate acidity, and it's it's relatively simple, and you've learned some of these concepts already. So if you have a soil that's acidic, what do you do? You raise the pH and you raise it using lime. Guess what? We do the same thing in acid mine drainage systems. Right. And you can find these. I mean, if you looked in the Western U.S., you take a, you took a drive, you would probably see areas that have water that's running through like a limestone bed. And it's just reacting with the, the acidity to raise the pH of the water and precipitate out the metals. And then the water goes off and it may or may not be cleaned at that point, but it goes through maybe some other processes. In areas in Colorado where we have this issue that I've worked on, people before me have come in and added lime. They do some calculations based on the acid generating potential of a location, right? So you can measure the pH and that's cute, but you need to know how much buffering capacity. Yeah, we've learned about this in our soil science classes, <laughs> buffering capacity of a soil. And those soils have a buffering capacity to prevent the change in pH from like two to seven. You want to be up around seven. Right. Take. So you can do some relatively easy math to determine this. And then you figure out the lime application and lime's great for raising the pH. But what, what does lime have in it besides it's just calcium carbonate roughly or calcium oxide? It doesn't have organic matter. Right. It doesn't have anything to kickstart microorganism activity. So yeah. you typically come in and add some kind of amendment and you'll use manure or biosolids or something else. And you try to kickstart the system. And this is the idea is that you add enough organic amendment because some of that's going to oxidize and it's going to be used by microorganisms and converted to CO2 and bye-bye. It goes yeah. to the atmosphere. <laughs> you, that's what it sounds like. Bye-bye. <laughs> I'm gone. <laughs> so you try to add enough organic amendment to overcome all of it being blown off as carbon dioxide, being attacked by microorganisms and used as an energy source. If you can do that, and I, this is where it gets interesting as sure. a scientist, like how much do you really need to add? Right. And if you add enough and you add plant species to stabilize a system, eventually the plant species are going to take hold and they have roots and a few typically perennial plant species. So you have continuous roots, mm -hmm. you have continuous cover as they grow and they senesce and they die and then they regrow. And you guess what? You see an improvement in soil health to the point where these materials don't move off site. So I'm starting a new project this summer with a graduate student and it's in Southwest Missouri where like a bomb went off and we're trying to prevent offsite movement of sediment that contains metals into sensitive water bodies by practicing the, these ideas. What kind of metals are in there? Zinc is the major issue. There's some lead, not much, but there's some lead, cadmium, and I think that's about it. Do any of them have the capacity to be remediated through like phytoremediation? So for people who don't know, this is using plants that can like act as essentially a pump to pull up metals and like copper. I know there's some plants that can do that with. Yeah, there's some plants <laughs> that will pull up copper, plants that will pull up zinc, nickel. The issue with phytoremediation is the fact that most of those plants don't grow very prolifically. Mm -hmm. They're short plants. Right. You know, they're not corn or they're not... It's not a tree. <laughs> it's not a tree. That's, that's a problem with some of these phytoremediators. Yeah. And they take forever too. Take forever. Yeah, I mean, the zinc concentrations in the site that we're working on are probably like uh, 1,200 parts per million. Normal zinc concentrations that a plant would see would be five. Oh, wow. 10. I mean, they're really elevated. Nothing yeah. grows at this site for a number of reasons. But 
you could try to fight or remediate it, but we're trying to remediate it in place and leave things in place and lock up those metals in insoluble forms and then regenerative ag, but in a mine setting, cover the soil, keep it covered with plants, living root system, prevent the soil from eroding into sensitive water bodies. So do you use something like a chelator? A chelate means claw-like or crab-like. It's an organic compound that has sort of a pocket in it that a metal like copper or zinc or manganese or iron fits perfectly. And one of my students this morning had a great analogy. They said, hey, Jim, next year what you need to do in your class is get a picture of one of those claw machines where you're trying to win a prize <laughs> because that's how they work. Yeah, yeah. You know, they may not see these metals unless you're under really contaminated conditions. But in natural conditions, they may or may not see them, but they will eventually they'll find something or they'll just degrade because they're carbon-based and microorganisms attack them and degrade them. But it's like the claw machine. The claw goes down and sometimes it picks up a prize and sometimes it doesn't. The prize is the metal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they, they go out into the bulk soil They'll find a metal, they'll grab a hold of it, they'll chelate it. And then there's a, there's a gradient between the bulk soil and next to the root, because the root has likely taken up some of those metals. So concentration near the root's low, concentration is greater out in the bulk soil. Chelate goes out, Ugh! That's the sound it makes. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Give it in. Yeah. Chelated, you sucker. <laughs> and it carries it back to the root and releases it because the concentration gradient is low. Or some of these chelates they'll actually cross the plasma membrane and go into the plant. And some of those are typically plant-created chelates. They're called phytosiderophores. Yeah. Wow, fancy word. <laughs> but the plant creates it, pumps it out because it perceives a deficiency. <clears throat> Got you, sucker. Carries it back across the plasma membrane and then releases the element that's necessary for plant growth into the plant. And so it will release zinc. It'll capture zinc. It'll capture iron. Iron's a classic one. Yeah. But it'll capture some of the other micronutrients that plants need. And in mineland reclamation... In situ, meaning reclaiming in place, we don't use very many chelates because they could be mobile. And this is actually, sometimes this happens. In fact, I could tell you this happens. So if you add an organic amendment, as that organic amendment breaks down, it will start forming its own chelates, forms natural chelates. And sometimes those chelates Brilliant. are dissolved in water and they can move downward. And I'm not trying to scare you because more often than not, the downward transport of metals is relatively low, but it happens. And what I've seen in the studies that we've done over the last 30 years is here in Colorado, the downward transport of those metals, if the metal's going to enter a water body or groundwater source, the concentration of those metals in the dissolved phase are like two or three orders of magnitude lower than drinking water standards. So we don't have to be concerned about it, but you know, it's kind of interesting to know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to know if you had some parting words of encouragement for young people who want to study agricultural science. You know, I think there's a belief that agriculture is just farming and it's boring. And why would anybody want to go into agriculture? And that is entirely not the case. You both know that. It's fascinating. <laughs> if you love science, agriculture is where you should be because you can make a real difference in this world by taking knowledge that you know and applying it. We do a lot of applied work. We also do a lot of basic work, but we do a lot of applied work to solve real world problems, to better humankind and the earth, to be honest with you. So I think about like, you know, I have a degree, an undergraduate degree in agronomy. I ha I'm an agronomist. And I just told you all sorts of stories of not farming, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like mineland reclamation and trying to prevent offsite movement of heavy metals. 
uptake of molybdenum in animals, nothing to do with farming. Yeah. So this is the beauty of this job is you can take things that you've learned in agricultural classes and apply them almost in any situation globally. And you don't have to be an engineer to do this. You don't need to be a physicist to do this. You don't even need to be a hardcore chemist to do this. You just had to have a love for what you do. Mm-hmm. And this job, I'm not kidding, will take you places that you've never thought you would go. Yeah, it's fascinating. Agriculture is almost its own ecosystem. And totally is. You know, we I really like the movement towards the name agroecology because that seems a better representation of what we do. Well, thank you so much for meeting with us and giving us such wonderful stories about your grandparents and what you do and mining reclamation. And thanks for talking with us about poop. <laughs> yes. It was my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. Exactly. And, and if, you know, I feel like we have so much more to talk to you about. If you want to come back, we would love to have you. Yeah, definitely. I, I didn't even get to half these questions. Like, would that be a good one? <laughs> yeah, we could talk for hours. So I'll, yeah. I would love to come back anytime. Cool. Awesome. Thank you, so Thank you so much. Thank you so much.